today's reading is Ruth chapter 1, uh, which can be found on page 267 of the Pew Bibles. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Good evening. Hello, well, I'm, my name's Ollie Benyon. I'm the curate here. If I haven't met you, hi. Um, yeah, do keep uh, the, the, that passage open, and I'm just going to pray for us as we, as we start. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that through it we can uh, get instruction and direction of how to live our lives. And maybe, Lord, we've read this passage multiple times or never before. Help us to, to see something that is uh, challenging and uh, instructive to us today. Amen. Well, we've had a pretty... Uh, rough few months, haven't we, in this country, and uh, when a, in, a, in a world that's been bombarded by one crisis after the next, um, it's quite, when we open this book of Ruth, um, it is, there's a, 
a sense of relief when we read a book that is so beautiful and uh, such a delight to read. Many people have said the book of Ruth is the most beautiful story ever written. Um, when Benjamin Franklin was the ambassador to France, um, he occasionally attended the Infidels Club, and that's a group that spent most of its time searching for and reading kind of uh, literary masterpieces. On one occasion, Franklin read the book of Ruth to them, and, but changed all the names so it wouldn't be recognized as something from the Bible. And when he finished, the listeners were unanimous in their praise, and they said it was one of the most beautiful short stories they had ever heard, and demanded that he tell them where he had run across such a remarkable work of art. And he loved telling them that it came from the Bible. Now, we haven't had time to read uh, this book. It is only uh, four chapters, and so it shouldn't take you very long to read it if you haven't done it, maybe 15 minutes, so I just encourage you to do so. Well, um, the story actually begins with the story of um, uh, a mother-in-law in Naomi. Now, I don't know what you think about that. When you, uh, That can't be necessarily a good uh, thing, can it, really? Um, there was a man once who took his wife and mother-in-law on a vacation to a holy land. Tragically, the mother-in-law died while in the holy land. And the man went to the undertaker and the undertaker uh, to ask him how much it would cost to get his mother-in-law shipped back to, to England. 5,000 pounds, uh, said the undertaker. But we can provide a very nice burial here in the holy land for only, you know, 150 pounds bargain. The man thought for a while, and he went, actually, no, I'll pay the 5,000 pounds. But why, said the undertaker. Well, said the man, 2,000 years ago, uh, they buried a man here after he died, and three days later, he rose from the dead. I simply can't take that chance. <laughs> now, I have a very, very good relationship with my mother-in-law. just want to get that out there. Um, it's partly because we don't speak the same language and she lives about a thousand miles away, which kind of helps. Um, however, the book of Ruth takes this whole mother-in-law relationship to, to, to another level. And as we will soon find out. Now, our, our story begins uh, with tragedy. There is a famine in Bethlehem, which is a bit of an ironic part of the story because Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, and in verse 1, it also tells us that this was a period of the judges, a time when people had just rejected God, turned their backs on him, and uh, gone their own way. And two words could describe Israel in this time period, chaotic disobedience. And it was during this famine that a Jewish man named Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and their two sons to a land called Moab. Now, this might sound like an old thing, okay thing to do, you know, to leave the famine in search of a better land to provide for your family. And some may say that is very similar to what I have done by moving from Oxford to Cambridge. You know, what could possibly go wrong with that? But for the people of God and probably those in Oxford, this is a big no-no. You see, Moab in this passage is a, is, is a cursed nation condemned because of the way they treated Israel in the wilderness. You know, this dates back to the time when 
Balak hired Balaam. You remember that the prophet with the talking donkey? Yeah, that is in the Bible. Uh, to curse Israel as it passed through the land. And when that failed, the Moabites stooped to tempting the people of Israel into sexual immorality. And because of that, it says in Deuteronomy 23, it says, No Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. So this trip was like at least the next level up from, to me moving from Oxford to Cambridge. Like at least. This is like a, a really, really bad thing to do. You know, so, so it's hard to see when we're reading this passage why they did this. You know, though it may have been motivated by looking after his family, it, it couldn't really be justified. For there were other places they could have gone where Yahweh was worshipped. But instead... They stopped trusting in the Lord's provision and went in search of something new. And the result of the move was by no way a success. Elimelech dies in Moab, leaving Noemi and her two sons, whose name, by the way, uh, actually are sickly and puny, I've discovered. That's the actual translation. And uh, she, they leave them in, in the wilderness. So Naomi marries off her two sons to Moabite women, but things go from bad to worse as their sons soon die. Her sons soon die. And to make matters worse, her sons have not given her grandchildren, and we know how much mother-in-laws love to have grandchildren. Naomi's circumstances are just as bad as they can get for a woman in ancient Near Eastern cultures with no, woman, uh, with no men to take care of. You know, it is a bleak situation. In Old Testament society, the status of women was far below that of what we see in the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. You see, Jesus, he raised out women, didn't he? You know, such as the woman of the well or, or Mary and Martha. And he gave teaching on divorce where he gave women rights that were equal to men. You know, Jesus was a revolutionary. But a, a, a widow in Naomi's time did not have the rights of inheritance and a security rested with her husband and then her sons. So when they died, you know, she is left with nothing. To make matters worse, Naomi was in a foreign land, which was a hostile land. And it's hard to imagine a situation that is, is any worse for her right now. In the midst of all this chaos uh, and this loss, Naomi hears that the situation has improved back in Bethlehem. The Lord had not forgotten his people. Of course he hadn't. So she decides it's time to return home. Though, as we see in this passage, she, she hardly had many options to choose from. So this leads me to the, just the first of two things I want to, to say today um, as we draw from this book. Uh, and it comes from the person of Noemi. These standout people, there's no, Ruth and Noemi. But I want to, the first one is Noemi. We may find ourselves in the midst of a spiritual famine, a time when we've lost touch with God and not seeing his provision like we once did. And it can be tempting in these times to look outside of our homeland for, uh, for, for, for provision, to be drawn into some new and exciting philosophy or the latest self-help guru or something somewhere offering a, uh, uh, the latest trend that grabs our attention. And we say, 
you know, hey, maybe that is going to be the answer to my circumstances. Rather than waiting the famine out, rather than trusting the Lord, we flee to another land, a land that promises answers to life's questions, to life's challenges. We flee and we discover that often it does, things go from bad to worse. The way we thought there was provision was only more problems. As Naomi shows us, when we're out of options, we can always go home. There was a time in the ministry of Jesus when he'd fed the 5,000 and uh, then he went off and walked on the water to see the disciples. And I think even Jesus would have thought that was a pretty epic day. Um, you know, the, the crowd who had been fed the day before started to clamor to come and meet with Jesus and ask him to perform even more miraculous signs, even invoking the name of Moses in the process. And Jesus said in, verse, in John verse 6, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread. It was my father. He went on to challenge the people by saying, don't search for the bread that perishes, but seek the bread that leads to eternal life. Then he added, I am the bread of life. The apostle John tells us that many at that point turned away from him. And he looked at his disciples and asked, will you turn away too? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom would we go? In those times when we feel like we're in what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul, we must turn to Jesus and trust that he is the source of all life. It doesn't matter how bleak our situation is, how far uh, we've run away from God, we can always turn back to him. Like the parable of the prodigal son, you know, who wished his father's dead by taking his inheritance while he was still alive and leaving for a foreign land and spending all his money on wild living. Only discover it just, it ended in misery. And what does he do? He decides to return home. The story of Naomi and the parable of the prodigal son shows us that when we turn back to the father, he will welcome us with open arms to reception that we cannot imagine or we do not deserve. And that is the wonderful news of the gospel, isn't it? That we can come back to the father no matter what we've done. and We can say sorry and he will welcome us back. So that's the first thing I wanted to say as a, from Naomi's uh, side. And the final challenge I just want to focus on comes, and this is kind of the main thing I'm going to be looking at, is Ruth's part of the story. Ruth was one of the two mobile women that Naomi's sons married. Um, Orpah and Ruth had failed to have any children, yet they continued to live in Naomi's household. As Naomi prepared to return to Bethlehem, she turned to Orpah and to Ruth and said this, and this is the message version in verse 8. Go back, go home and live with your mothers. And may God treat you as graciously as you treated your de de um, deceased husbands and me. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband. After a little persuasion, Orpah left, but Ruth persisted. And this is where we hear those famous words um, by Ruth. She says this in verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or to return back from you. Where you will go, 
I will go. Where you will stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And we've heard these words spoken sometimes in wedding ceremonies. And they are really relevant because they speak of the depth of love a husband and wife are supposed to have for one another. But here it's spoken by a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law, which is a little bit challenging, if not odd. You know, I don't know if anyone here has ever considered making such a promise to their mother-in-laws. Possibly not. Well, the Hebrew word in verse 16, it says, um, you know, don't urge me to leave you. The Hebrew word for leave in verse 16 is similar to the word from the vow of marriage that we see in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united or, or cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the Genesis commandment was for, for sons to leave parents, but it wasn't for, for daughters-in-laws to cleave to their parents-in-law. You see what's amazing here? Ruth made cleaving to Naomi her choice, her business, her future, her destiny. You know, now that her husband was dead and that her brother's brother was dead also, her obligation to Naomi had ended. She was free to return to her homeland. But Ruth applied this incredible vow to herself and bound herself to Naomi. And by doing so, Ruth demonstrated covenant love. Like that, we see in a marriage. And that's the same kind of love God has for his people. And it's the same love we see ultimately in the life of Jesus. You know, imagine this, that God has chose a pagan woman to demonstrate his covenant love to a chaotic and disobedient people of God. Isn't that incredible? And we can talk about, we can't talk about the covenant love without thinking about agape love, you know, the the love Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, love is patient, love is kind, all those, et cetera, et cetera. They're the the one, uh, they are one in the same love. But But long before Paul wrote about it, Ruth demonstrated it. Long before Jesus died on the cross in love, Ruth lived it out. And there are a number of characteristics we could describe this covenant love, but only time permits one, and I just want to look at one. It's sacrificial. Ruth was demonstrating sacrificial love to Naomi. She was giving up her culture, her people, her language, and her rights to have her own children in her own land. She was putting the needs of others ahead of her own. And not all families you know, respond like that, are so uh, sacrificial like that. A friend of mine recently got married, and her husband um, has a sister who, when getting married a year earlier, approached her uh, future in-laws and they asked, the in-laws asked if they could pay for the entire wedding. And having you know, little money themselves, they went, yeah, well, yeah, brilliant, take it. 
But they discovered uh, that her parents were just deeply offended not to be able to contribute. Just really wounded by that. Now instead of uh, the parents sitting her daughter down and explaining why they were offended, they, their parents decided to cut off communications altogether until their daughter you know, came and groveled and apologized. And now they've now basically stopped speaking for a long time now. And at the wedding of their son, they refused to acknowledge their daughter, even though she was a bridesmaid. We live in a society with lots of just dysfunctional families, selfish families that are just all about our own rights. But sacrificial love does not come with, with strings attached of the way we're to behave. This type of love is not bound by how we feel or our circumstances. It is a choice we make on behalf of another. It is also rooted in the heart and character of God. Simply put, it comes from God. You know, if we love this way, it's because God first loved us. There's a famous story um, uh, about something that happened in the Second World War in July 1941. A prisoner uh, escaped from Auschwitz, and as a reprisal, the Gestapo selected 10 men arbitrary from to, to die in a starvation bunker. And one of the men selected, his name was Francis Garvinischek. And when he was selected, he cried out, he said, oh, he said, my poor wife, my, my, my poor children, they will never see me again. And at that moment, the little, a little guy, a Polish man in glasses with wire frames, stepped out and he and he took off his cap and he said, you know, I'm a Catholic priest and I don't have a wife or children. He said, I would like to die instead of this man. And to everyone's amazement, his offer was accepted and he was taken to a starvation bunker. And the priest, he led the prisoners in prayers and, and singing hymns. And each time guards checked on him, he was singing or standing or kneeling in the middle of the cell and looking calmly at those as they entered. After two weeks of dehydration and starvation, only the priest remained alive. On the 14th of August, they needed the bunker for other people. And they gave him a lethal injection of carbolic acid, and that's how he died. Now, 41 years later, his death was put in its proper perspective. There, in a, in a crowd of 150,000 people, 26 cardinals, 300 archbishops and bishops, St. Peter's Square, Rome, in the crowd was Francis Garvnicek. And the Pope said on that occasion about his death, the death of Maximilian Kolb, that Polish 47-year-old priest who stepped forward to give his life, that was a victory like the one won by our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he gave himself, he gave up his life out of love. Now Francis Garvinicek died at the age of 93, and he spent the rest of his life going around telling everyone of this man who died in his place. Now that is just an extraordinary picture of sacrificial love, isn't it? And in Naomi's case, Ruth demonstrated sacrificial love. And as a reminder that no matter how far away from home you are, or how bleak your circumstances, God is with us and God loves us. He loves to call us home. 
back to the place of, of a right relationship, back to a place of reconciliation, back to the place of redemption. And for Naomi and Ruth, as they return to Bethlehem, we see how the Lord provided in ways they couldn't possibly imagine. If it was back in Bethlehem that Ruth met a man named Boaz, who showed mercy on Ruth and Naomi. Boaz and Ruth eventually married, and they had a son who would become King David's grandfather. And Ruth would eventually become the great, 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 great grandmother of the greatest king in history. And it all happened in Bethlehem. You know, it was again in Bethlehem that God came in Jesus Christ and showed us what real sacrificial love looks like. And the challenge we, uh, the church, have today is to learn to, to love like Ruth, but more than that, to, to love like Jesus. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2. Uh, this is the message version Verse 5 to 8, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having becoming human, he stayed human. It was an incredible, humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Now, I'm aware this is not, this is not an easy lesson. You know, to grasp the concept of sacrificial love does not come naturally to us because learning to love the things of God will be costly. You know, it may, even, it may even cost your life. But it is when we surrender ourselves to the one who has promised to deliver us, to reconcile us, to redeem us, we discover the fullness of life. So as I come to the end, I'm just going to ask the band to, to, to come up. I just want to just ask us, really, what, what do you have to give up today to be reconciled maybe to a, a brother or a sister or a father or a mother or a co-worker or a friend? You know, what are you holding on to that is keeping you from the fullness of life, from, from returning home? Why don't we give up maybe our rights just like Ruth did? Maybe then we'll discover the incredible provision of God that will surpass our wildest dreams. So I want us to just encourage us to learn to discover what it means to, to love like Jesus. And that's a journey that we're going to be learning through our, all our lives, isn't it? And what does it mean to love like Jesus? And you know, my hope and prayer is what how you are right now and how you are in five, ten years' time, you're going to be in a very different place. And there are people here who I know who, you know, you know, who love like Jesus in a, in a far more intimate way than they did back in many, many years ago. So we're going to have a little moment of uh, just, uh, the band is going to sing a song. 
And it's just time for us to reflect. What is, how do we learn to love like Jesus? How do we learn to um, sacrificially give of ourselves in that way?